Well, we've already said it a couple of times, and hopefully you shared it with one another, but uh, happy Father's Day to all of the dads. One of the great joys and privileges of my life is to be a father, and they're going to throw the picture of my kids up on the screen there for me. Uh, this is uh, my wife, Corey, and then this is Cooper, Branson, Kinley, and Tucker. It actually goes Cooper, Branson, Tucker, Kinley in order there. But uh, Kinley doesn't smile in pictures because uh, she's just paying us back for taking so many pictures of her. Uh, but man, I, I just, I love being a dad. I'm actually flying solo on Father's Day right now. Uh, I'm going to kind of reconnect with my family a little later today, but they couldn't join me this morning. But uh, man, I love being a dad. Uh, like I said, it's one of the great joys of my life, but one of the funniest things about being a dad is like the bad rap that dads get. Can I get an amen from the dads in the room? Right? I mean, like Mother's Day is something that we all celebrate and we cherish and we honor it and it's like amazing and everybody's like sad and happy and excited and Father's Day is like this thing we kind of threw in in the middle of summer vacation. It's like, oh, we haven't celebrated dads in a while, Right? Because like in, in previous generations, and previous culture, when technology and culture was different, Mother's Day was the second highest season of the year for the U.S. Postal Service, only next to Christmas, as people would send cards home to their moms in celebration of them. Father's Day used to be the highest day of the year in number of collect calls. Now, some of you don't even know what a collect call is because you're like, what? Did you do that with your cell phone? Is that like an app or something? But what would happen is, you know, you would spend postage to send cards home to your mom and then you would forget about Father's Day and then you would like call collect, which here's all that means, that dads were actually paying themselves to talk to their kids because the bill would be sent to them later. I ran across this on Facebook this week. I was actually tagged in it by one or two of you, uh, maybe in anticipation of, of this day. And then I saw it on a lot of other people's pages. But there was a number of pictures that really kind of compared moms and dads. And I thought we would just look at these and really celebrate fatherhood today. Um, this is how a mother helps their child to ride a bike. And evidently, this is how a father <laughs> helps their child to ride a bike, I guess. I'm not really sure. It looks like a monkey chasing after him, it appears. Okay, go to the next one. This is how mother shops for groceries. This is how dad shops for groceries. If you can't see, there are groceries stacked on top of the child in the stroller. Because dads, it's impossible to push a stroller and a cart, right? And when those kids kind of go straight-legged, you can't get them in the grocery buggy. Like, it, you just can't. They don't go, they don't bend that way, and it's really bad. I'm not saying I've ever done that, but that is my picture. The third one here. This is what mothers do when they're cooking, they're helping, you know, cut, and they're holding the knife so that the child doesn't injure themselves. Dad's actually got her on the grill. <laughs> like the rubber of her shoes, if you can see, are actually melting away there. They're thinner than they should be. Let's go to the next one here. This is how moms, you know, feed and help teethe their children with carrots and something there. And it's Dad's got his pinky in the baby's mouth. I've actually done that, and I know some moms that have done that, but by the looks of, of this guy, maybe he hasn't bathed in quite some time. <laughs> Let's go to the next one here. This is moms at amusement parks sharing in the experience with their children. Dad is riding the go-kart probably too fast by the terror look on the daughter's face there. And let me just say, I don't, I don't fault that dad at all. Those go-karts are fun. All right, let's go to the next one. This is what moms do to play with their children. They're, they're stacking blocks. Dad's got a, he's got an electric blower <laughs> shooting the daughter in the face 
to get that expression. And if you have not seen, let me just pause. This is not on the screen. If you have not seen the YouTube clips of dads getting their daughter's hair in a ponytail with a vacuum cleaner, that's amazing. All right? Like they just suck all the hair up and then pop the little thing on there. I mean, as a father of a daughter, it's impossible. I think there's one more picture yeah, this is a mom at a, at a zoo or maybe Jurassic World that looks like maybe some kind of dinosaur there. Dad's holding them by the feet. I don't even think this is at a zoo. I think this is, this is like an endangered species or something here that he's holding down. But uh, yeah, you know, dads get a bad rap because these experiences actually look a little fun to me. Like, I, I don't, if, if, if my dad did that when I was a kid, like, I feel like that kind of shaped me into the fun person that I am. But, um, but man, dads get a bad rap because some of us, if we're not careful, we, we kind of buy into what culture has told us about fatherhood. You know, in our culture, there are some legitimate issues related to fatherhood. The statistics about kids being raised in fatherless homes are real. And the statistics about the, the percentage of inmates in prison who didn't have a father at home, they're real. And, and it doesn't mean if you're not living in the home of your kids, they're destined for jail. It's just the idea that the role of fathers in the lives and in the homes of the children are a big deal. And today we're going to look at fatherhood. And, and if you're not a father in the room, I, I don't think that you should necessarily just kind of tune me out. I think that there are principles here for all of us. But to the dads in the room, to the fellow fathers in the room, with kids of any age, maybe, maybe your wife's pregnant for the very first time, maybe, maybe you've got a, a baby for the very first Father's Day, maybe you know, your kids are kind of grade school age or middle school, high school age, maybe they're kind of just starting to leave the house, maybe they're out of the house and you're empty nesting it for the first time. Maybe you've got grandkids and your kids are old enough now to have their own kids and whatever stage of fatherhood you're in, to the fathers I would say this morning that I really believe the principles that we're going to find in this story in Scripture are still applicable to you. That if you have kids now or your kids are having kids of their own, that these are still things that you as a father should be and can be doing in their lives. And if you're not a father in the room, again, I believe that these principles are true for, for you as a mother that these are things you can apply in your relationship to your children. If you're a grandmother, maybe you're, maybe you're married, but you haven't had kids, but you want to. Maybe these are things that you can do there or you don't want to. And maybe you're single. Maybe you're a student in your room. You go, man, I, this has nothing to do with me. I still think that these principles transfer and translate to all of the people in our lives and around us and the way that we interact with them and the way that we interact with those that we care for, we love, we're responsible for, responsible to. I think these are transferable principles, and we're going to find them today in the story of David. We've been in a series now for several weeks, and we'll continue for several weeks in this story uh, out of Scripture about the life of who we know to be King David. David is a, a young man in the beginning of this story, and he's going to be an old man here in the passage that we'll read today. But all throughout his life, we see these interactions and relationships with the different people that he comes in contact with. And we see the stories that help for us to shape and get a picture of his life. And I believe that there are transferable uh, principles out of this story, especially on a day like today for all of us. So if you got a Bible, I want you to flip with me to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 28. You're going to find that just a, you know, maybe a third of the way through uh, the Old Testament, you're going to be reading through some of these narratives and Old Testament narratives of stories there. But First Chronicles 28 is a place where we're going to really look kind of at the beginning of the end for David. 
Maybe not even the beginning of the end. Maybe it's the end. And we are seeing here a a little bit of the, the story of the handoff between him and his son Solomon. Now, what you need to know about Solomon is that Solomon comes out of the relationship between David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is a name that we know out of the story of David for many of us as a kind of a person with a negative connotation in his life because this is a woman that David had an affair with. She was married to another man and David saw her and desired her and brought her to the palace and has an affair with her. And we see this story play out where eventually David has her husband killed. And so then, you know, she gets pregnant, notifies David, hey, I'm pregnant and it's yours. And so they, they decide how they're going to cover this up. He brings her to the palace. The baby is born and eventually dies as a part of the punishment for the way that David has conducted himself. He repents of his sin to the prophet Nathan, and we see that story play out. And then something happens after the baby has passed away, after he has confessed and tried to make right his relationship with God. Then we see that he makes things right with Bathsheba. He marries her. He brings, him, uh, brings her into the palace there to be his wife, and then they have another child, and that child is Solomon. And so Solomon is a child that was born out of a little bit of dysfunction, born out of a dysfunctional relationship, but born into riches, born to, uh, up to this point in the story, the greatest, richest king ever to live. He would eventually supersede his father in that uh, and become the greatest, wisest king ever to rule and ever to live. But um, we read about Solomon throughout Scripture. We don't really have a lot of glimpse of the early part of his life, but really from this point forward, we see some of the middle uh, family dynamics that he's in and then a part of him taking the reign, and then we read several things that he writes himself in Scripture. But in 1 Chronicles 28, we see that David is about to pass away. He's about to pass off the throne to Solomon, and then he's going to die. And here's what we're going to read today, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to jump from 9 all the way through the end of this chapter and into chapter 29 to really look at this idea of leaving a legacy after we're gone, leaving a legacy. It's not meant to be morbid. It's not meant to make us all contemplate our death or mortality, but it is the idea that we want our lives to last beyond the framework of the dates that we live here on the earth. So how do we leave a legacy? Let's read in 1 Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 9. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, this is David talking, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now here's what we need to understand before we jump in to the remaining portions of this text. We need to understand that David is about to kind of give a charge or help us to have a glimpse of the relationship that he has with Solomon and what he desires for Solomon's life to look like after he's gone and after he's out of power. Now, you may not be king of Israel today. If you are, please come and tell us after service is over because we would like to meet you. But even if you're not king of Israel today, maybe you have some standing in society. Maybe you have a good job. Maybe you have, you know, you're kind of a higher up in your organization. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're just living life. Maybe your family has no name in any community. Nobody really knows you. You're just kind of living life, doing your own thing. I still think that your legacy is something to be considered today. From, From young age to old age, it's not something that we normally think about, maybe until we're kind of approaching the end you think, what, what's my life going to be like after, you know, what, what is the legacy of my life going to be like after I'm gone? What are people going to remember about me? But I think if we really want to be intentional in our lives, then we have to consider that from the beginning. 
Stephen Covey wrote a book many years ago, and it really shaped my dad's life. It's talking about the habits of highly effective people. And one of those principles is about seeing the end from the beginning. And my dad talks about this all the time. He talked about it when I was a teenager. I remember him using this in the foundations of how he was parenting my brother and I. And he has talked about this continually throughout my life. Even as of this week, I heard him reference it. But one of the habits of highly effective people is that they see the end from the beginning. It's the idea that we stand at a moment and we look ahead to the end. And we determine what we want the end to look like, and then we work backwards from there to figure out the steps that are needed for us to accomplish that desired ending. So if we want at the end of our lives, or if we want at the end of this year to, let's just say, let's just use the year, let's use the short term. By the end of this year, I want to lose 30 pounds. Well, you can't wait until December to lose 30 pounds. I've tried, it doesn't work, okay? You get to Thanksgiving, it's coming, you're putting the weight on, it's not coming off, Right? They start putting food in front of me, my willpower goes away. All right? So, at, okay, how do I lose 30 pounds by the end of the year? Well, how many weeks do I have left? How many pounds do I have to lose per week? And what, what should I anticipate? And then setting a course and setting a chart. Hey, this is how I'm going to work towards the goal that I have at the end of this year. I want to save money. So by the time my kids get out of high school, I want to have X amount of dollars in savings or in retirement. Well, then how much money do I need to be saving every year to accomplish that desired goal? By the end of my life, I want to have accomplished these things. Sometimes that's referenced as a bucket list. By the end of the life, by by the time I kick the bucket, what do I want to have accomplished? Well, you probably can't start that in the last six months unless you're a Tim McGraw song. So other than that, what you have to do, that was funnier than y'all gave it credit for. Come on now, folks. You got to, no country music fans in the room right there. All right, that's fine. That's fine. That's really funny. That's really funny, but I'm going to let that one go. But other than that, we have to go, okay, what do I want to accomplish And how do I want to work towards those goals and towards accomplishing that bucket list? What do I want to experience in my 20s or my 30s or my 40s or my 50s or my 60s or 70s, whatever? And so we see the end from the beginning. And so today, as we look at this, I want you to know that David is laying that out. He's laying out his legacy in Solomon. He is kind of showing us the things that he's already invested in Solomon and the things that he hopes Solomon does after he's gone. And one of those things is referenced here. He says, uh, be careful now for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Now here's what you need to know. This was always David's plan. David wanted to be the one to build the house. He wanted to be the one to build the tabernacle, to build the thing for God. And that's now going to happen after he's gone. And so we're going to read some of that story throughout the rest of this passage. Let's continue reading in verse 11. All right. And this is really about teaching them what you know. This is is a part of, of leaving that legacy. It's saying, hey, I'm going to teach them what I know. So let's read this and see what David taught Solomon. Verse 11 says this, then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses and its treasures, its upper rooms and its inner chambers and of the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries of the dedicated gifts, the divisions for the priests and the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord. You can continue reading from verses 14 all the way to verse 19, and you really see the plan that David lays out for Solomon. This is a plan that David's been thinking about. This is a a thing that David knows in his head. He already has it laid out. Here's what it's going to look like when we build a house for the Lord, for a tabernacle for the Lord. And so what he does is he lays that plan out for Solomon. He says, hey, God's chosen you to be the one that's going to accomplish it, so here's the plan. Think back right now, and sometimes on a day like this, it's easy to do, but what are some things that your dad taught you? If you had a relationship with your dad or maybe some type of fatherly figure in your life, what'd they teach you? They teach you how to change your oil. 
They teach you how to change your brakes. They teach you how to hit a curveball. They teach you how to cook, maybe. They teach you how to, you know, pack for a long trip or maybe pack a car. Did they teach you how to uh, garden? Did they teach you how to keep your lawn? Did they teach you how to do construction projects? Did they teach you how to work hard? Did they teach you how to save money or maybe spend money? What are the things that your father taught you? And this goes for all of us in the room. Now, I realize, again, some of us on this day, we, we can't really point to a positive experience with a father. And we go, oh, he didn't teach me anything except how to leave. But maybe we even learn from that. What are the things that we learn, both positive and negative, from our fathers of our past? If you want to leave a legacy for your children or those who are coming behind you or for those who are going to remember you after you're gone, I think one of the things is that you can invest yourself in others, teaching them what you know. Now, a problem with a lot of that is that we have a little bit of a self-conscious problem. We have a little bit of an insecurity where we think we don't have a lot to contribute to other people. We think that we don't have a lot to give because, oh, surely there's people that know more about this subject than I do. But here's what I would say to you. You have more to contribute than you think. You have more to give than you imagine because there are people who need to know what you know. Now, maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a coworker who's come on after you. Maybe it's someone who's going to eventually replace you in your job. And if you're secure enough, you can make sure that when you're gone, they know how to do the necessary skills to accomplish the tasks that you feel are success in your specific position. So you got to teach them what you know. And I think if you do that, if you prioritize that in your life, I think that what you'll find is that a part of your legacy after you're gone, is something that they're going to say about you. That yeah, He always took the time to teach me something. She always took the time. She, she was busy, but she stopped what she was doing and made sure that I knew how to do fill in the blank. She made sure that I knew. He made sure that I knew. He made sure to take time to teach me. She made sure to teach me this. Now, here's the reality. It's harder sometimes to teach somebody to do something than it is just to do it yourself. Like, if you've got kids, then you know this. If you've got, like, a coworker that's new to the company, you know this. Like, it's easier for you just to go print the stuff out. Like, it's easier for you just to set the table. It's easier for you just to load the washer or get the stuff out of the dryer. It's easier for you to whatever. But if you want to be about leaving a legacy, it's about teaching them the necessary skills. And so early on, it's probably going to be frustrating, and it's going to take two or three times longer than it should take, but the next time it's going to take a little less than that. And the next time it's going to take a little less than that because they are beginning to transfer the knowledge from you to themselves. And so as you teach them what you know, you have to be willing to endure a little bit of frustration early. The second thing that we see in leaving a legacy out of this story is that we need to shape their spirituality. We need to shape their spirituality. Look at this beginning in verse 20 where David's talking here to Solomon. He says, Then David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. And he will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And with you in all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. Now, I'm going to step on some toes for a couple of minutes. Just forgive me. If you are a parent in the room, your kids most likely will not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in one of those classrooms right there. 
And I'm not just pointing to that cinder block wall. There are classrooms behind that where our kids are learning. Now, they may accept Jesus in the prayer in that moment, but the influence of your life often shapes and dictates the salvation experience of our kids. An overwhelming percentage of people accept Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of their life, before the age of 18. It's an even higher percentage before the age of 13. And an almost staggering number of people that accept Jesus in that time frame do so because of the example of their parents. Maybe it's outside of their immediate family, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's an aunt and uncle, but it's definitely related to family influence. And I think if we were to do this, we're not going to, but if we were to do this, and I ask you to raise your hand today, if, if you became a Christian either through a, a prayer that was prayed or led by a family member or through the example of a family member, that's probably going to be a lot of hands in the room. And so parents, if you're sitting here and you're going, well, I bring my kids to church so that they can handle the spiritual stuff in their life because I don't know enough. I believe you're neglecting a humongous part of the job that God gave you. The reality is that God did not just give you your kids to provide for them a home or to clothe them or to send them off to school. He did not just instill, give kids to you so that you could instill them a good work ethic. I believe the primary responsibility of a mom and dad is to be the primary disciplers of their sons and daughters. Now, you may be sitting here today and going, listen, I've tried my best. They just don't listen. Keep trying. You say, well, my kids are out of the house now. They're as far away from God as you can possibly imagine. Keep praying. Keep modeling. Show them the grace of God. Show them that they can't ever get too far away. Model for them forgiveness. I believe that the primary role of mothers and fathers is to be the primary disciplers of their sons and daughters. And I wrote this down and I put it up on the screen so that you can see it. Your children won't just fall into a relationship with God. Often they will follow your lead into one or not. Our kids are watching us. If you bring them to church one Sunday a month, they're going to assume it's just something that we do when we have time. If they never see you read your Bible, if they never hear you pray, they assume it's not something that you do, and they won't do it either. If they watch the way that you interact with other people, it does not matter what you say on Sunday morning on the way to church or on the way home from church. They will assume that what you do the other six and a half days a week is more important than what you do on an hour on Sunday morning. The example that we set for our children has got to be about helping shape their soul. Shaping their spirituality. What David said right here is he said, listen, be strong and courageous. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. How many times have you put that into your own words to share with your children? What truth about God do your kids know because you taught them and not because they heard it on a Sunday morning? I believe church is important. The reason that I can spend Father's Day sitting in a church is because my parents took me to church and instilled in me that it was something important, it was something vital. It didn't get me to heaven, but it was something that we did because the fellowship with other believers, the community aspect, the corporate worship setting was vital. It was important. I'm better because I'm here with you every time we gather together. My dad taught me that. My mom taught me that. 
They modeled that for me. They were sick. We went to church. I had homework. We went to church. There were things on our schedule. We went to church first. I watched them read their Bible. I walked into rooms where my dad was kneeling down at the couch praying for a specific need in our family. I could hear my mom through the walls of my bedroom praying for me and for my brother and for our future spouses and for our future children, for jobs that I didn't yet have, for schools that I didn't even attend. It modeled for me that we pray and we talk to the Lord. One of the ways that you can leave a legacy for your child beyond just helping them get a good work ethic and know how to save money is to help shape in them their spirituality. And one more time I would say, if your kids aren't living for the Lord, but you're doing everything you know to do, if your kids are out of your house and you think your influence is gone, keep praying, keep modeling, keep reaching, and ask God to continue to give you the influence to shape their spirituality. The third thing is this, you gotta provide for them. You got to provide for them. Look at this beginning in verse tw- uh, chapter 29, verse 1. And, the, and David the king said to all the assembly. So he's done talking to Solomon. He's now talking to everybody else. Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And he's not belittling his son right here. He's actually setting him up for success. And the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I've provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. That's important. So far as I was able. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, uh, antimony and colored stones and all sorts of precious stones and marble. Uh, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? And here's what David knew. He knew that there was a job to be done after he was gone and Solomon was going to do it, but he knew that it would take more than the supplies that he had, and David had a bunch of supplies. And so before he was gone, he leveraged his influence for the sake of Solomon's success. And what he said to the whole assembly is he said, here's what I'm giving first. Who will give also to the work of God that will be led by my son? Now, obviously, there's financial context here. And when we talk about providing for our kids, we often talk about the ways that we financially provide for our kids. We do give them a home. We do maybe give them a car to drive, or we provide for some other activities that they do financially. And that's all well and good. I don't fault any of that. I was provided those things. I hope to be able to continue to provide as much of that for my kids as I can, while also instilling in them a sense of responsibility. But providing for my kids stretches beyond finances. It also is about what David did, leveraging my influence for the success of my kids, trying to find ways to provide opportunities for them that have nothing to do with money. So now and in the future, how am I providing for 
my children. What David was making sure is that when Solomon set out to do the job, that he had all of the necessary requirements to do that job. I'm not talking about giving them a silver spoon. I'm not talking about bankrupting yourself in order that they would have things that they don't really need, they just want. What did David say right there? He said, I have given of myself so far as I was able. Sometimes you just have to tell your kids no. I know I do. I don't like to all the time, but sometimes I say, no, we don't need that. You don't need that. You just want it. There are other times that I spoil them and give them things that they don't need. But as a loving father, if I'm going to leave a legacy, I have to make sure that I am providing both financially in experience and beyond for my children. And I think we all have to do that. The fourth thing is this. We got to pray for them. Look at this in verse 10 of chapter 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of the, uh, of the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O Lord, and praise your glory name. Let me just stop right here before we skip to verse 18. That's a good way to start a prayer. Just tell God how good he is before you ever ask him a thing that you need from him. Verse 18 says this, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts forward you, toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all and that he may build the palace of which I have made provision. He lays out all this stuff about how good God is. How God has kept his family. How God has performed miracles for their ancestors. And then he says in the very last verse of this prayer, Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments and your testimonies, your statutes, performing all. that he may build the palace from which I have made provision. He prayed for his heart before he prayed for the work of his hands we got to pray for our kids. I'll go back to what I said earlier, but how many times have your kids seen you or heard you praying for them? And how many times have you just prayed when they're nowhere around that God would capture their hearts, that God would help them to keep his commands, and that God would help them accomplish something in their lives that you never accomplished in yours? That's what David prayed. He said, God, the palace, the tabernacle, the home, that I always wanted to build, my son's going to build that, and I pray that you make him successful. There, I don't think parents would do this by and large, but there's a little part of humanity that goes, yeah, but I wanted to do it. So, I mean, I hope it's good, but I hope it's not great. I mean, I don't want him to celebrate. So, no. David said, listen, God, capture his heart and let him be successful in everything that you have called him to. We talk to our kids' teachers about how they're doing in school. We talk to our kids' coaches about how they're doing on the field. We talk to our kids' bosses sometimes about their jobs. Do we talk to their heavenly father about the matters of their heart? And then the last thing is this. You got to let them go. In a minute, we're going to sing the Frozen song. We're all going to celebrate. And Trevor's going to come up here dressed in a princess outfit. It's going to be amazing. Don't miss it. We got to let them go. This is what we read in verse 22. And they made Solomon the son of David king, and they anointed him as the prince for the Lord and Zadok as the priest. 
And then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father. And he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. And all the leaders and the mighty men and also the sons of King David pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. We have to parent our children. We have to invest in those that are a part of our lives that maybe are not our own kids with an open hand. When we dedicate children here on Sundays, which I love to do, we, we pray and say, God, we know that these children are a gift from you. Sometimes we parent as if God has called us to be dictator over our homes. We're called to be disciplinarians, but those kids aren't ours. They're God's. He just entrusted their care to us. He just entrusted their discipline to us. He just entrusted their provision to us. He just entrusted their spiritual development to us. But the plan was never for you to hold on to your kids. The plan was that you release your kids. And this is not about just old age. This is not about, well, yeah, I mean, when I die, he'll get the business. And when I die, she'll get my stuff. And This is saying to God, God, if, if you've called me to steward kids right now in my home or outside of my home in some capacity as friends and neighbors and aunts and uncles and grandparents, whatever the role is, as much as it depends on me, I'm going to provide and care and shepherd them. But as early as you see fit, I release them back to you for your service. How amazing would it be if the testimony today of youth camp wasn't one daughter called to ministry, and this is not about coming and preaching on a stage, just called of life service unto God, but what if it was dozens from among us? What if every family represented could say, yeah, God has my kids. They're, they're leading their lives, working jobs over here and faithfully attending a church and investing in their community and they're ministering over here in this way and they're serving over here and they're leading their home over here. And As much as it depends on us, and it doesn't all depend on us, but as much as it depends on us, that's what we want the testimony to be. I would say again to the dads, dads, your kids aren't just going to fall into a relationship with Jesus. They're probably going to follow you there. Are you leading them there? Moms, are you leading them there? Grandparents, are you leading them there? Aunts and uncles, are you leading them there? Neighbors of the kids in your neighborhood that love coming to your house, they play in your yard, they play in your neighborhood. Are you leading them there? 
when the Holy Spirit does that convicting work in their heart and life and they feel this call, this tug towards salvation to acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, are they more likely to accept Jesus or less likely to accept Jesus because of what you've modeled for them? That's the challenge. That's the call. That's motherhood. That's fatherhood. That's family. That's community. That's relationship. That's what we've been called to do. We're all called to leave a legacy. We don't want our lives to end the moment we end. We want our story to continue. And so I would say it to you this way. Live out now the things that you want them to remember later. Heaven forbid there comes a day when a Father's Day happens for your kids and you're no longer living here on the earth or a Mother's Day or a birthday or an anniversary or maybe you've moved away and they just can't call you on that day or you're, you're, you're on a trip somewhere, you're on a boat somewhere and you don't have cell service, you can't get an email and they're trying to think about how do I communicate what they've done for me? What are they remembering about you on that day? I showed you the picture of my four kids. I'm not with them today. And I don't know how much a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, an almost 4-year-old think about this. I mean, they gave me good gifts this year, but I think their mom was partly responsible for that. But I mean, I don't know how much they think about it, but what are my kids thinking about when they hear Father's Day? Well, we're celebrating Dad today. What are we celebrating? When they're not 10 and 8 and 6 and almost 4 and they're 20 and 18 and 16 and almost 14 or 40 and 38 and 36 and almost 34 and... 60 and 58 and 56 and almost what are they thankful for about me? What are they they thinking about? What's the legacy that I'm leaving? Again, I'm not trying to take this to a morbid place. I can say this because my wife's not here and she won't fuss at me in the car. But when they show up to my funeral And they all take turns standing at that microphone, which I've walked this journey with so many of you already. And you stand there to talk about your mom or your dad or your grandparents or you. What are they going to say about me? What are they going to tell everybody else that showed up or nobody else in the room? What are they going to talk about when they're sitting on the couch thinking about what to say tomorrow? I want to leave a legacy. I want to live a life that they have something worth remembering. I think that's what David shows us here in this story as he interacts with his son Solomon. He said, listen, I'm moving on. But you still have a job to do. And I want you to find more success than I ever found in my life. So I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to help to shape your spirituality, and hopefully I've already done that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to let you go to be all that God desires you to be. When my kids were dedicated to the Lord, each of them, my dad did something really cool. The day that we dedicated them back to the Lord, my dad opened a savings account, and he put $100 in it. And he took that money and he allowed that kind of account that he had established to be invested and he can shape some of that. And this is not a college fund. We have that too. 
This is not a savings account just for them to buy a car one day. This is a legacy fund. This is a ministry fund. And here's what my dad told me the day we dedicated Cooper, and he's repeated every time we've dedicated another child. He said, there will come a day when Cooper says to you, me, Dad, I, my youth group's going on a missions trip, and I want to go. And here's how much it costs. Dad said, I never want money to be the reason you can't let him go. He said, Branson will show up one day and say, Dad, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I've got a call of God on my life. And to pursue this call, I've, I've got to go over here. And it costs money over there. And my dad said to me, as a part of the legacy that he leaves to me, I want you to tell Branson, the day we prayed to God and said that he was his, we put some money in an account and we continue to invest it so that we can always say, Branson, go chase God. The day that Tucker shows up and says, Dad, I got a crazy idea. And I know this doesn't sound like ministry because that's how Tucker will start this conversation. <laughs> but he'll say, I, I, I want to go do this thing. I, wanna, I, need, I need a little money to start this thing that I believe will impact people this way. I always want to be able to say yes there. And when Kenley comes to me, in that little manipulative way that she does. And she says, Dad, here's a dream that God's put in my heart. And I want to chase it. I want you, this is my dad talking to me, to tell her yes. As you parent them with an open hand. so that I can say to my kids, really through little effort of my own, but as a part of the legacy that my dad leaves to me, I can say to my kids, the greatest gift that I was ever given as a father was you. And the greatest gift that I can give you is to chase Jesus with everything that you are. What kind of legacy are we leaving those that come after? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the stories of Scripture. I thank you that they're not disconnected from the stories of our lives. And God, I pray today for every person in this room, both fathers and mothers, and aunts and uncles, and grandmas and grandpas, and neighbors and friends and coworkers. I pray today, God, that you would help us to live our lives not confined in a moment, not constrained by time, but God, thinking about tomorrow, thinking about the legacy that we want to leave, living now in such a way that they have something to remember later. God, I pray that you would help all of us to pray for our kids to provide for them, to shape their spirituality. God, to invest in them in really tangible ways. And God, to allow you to shape in us 
what you desire to to see shaped in them. In Jesus' name we pray.